Yet not I, but through Christ in me. We've, we've sung those words a number of times throughout this series. Um, over many months, we've, as we've been plodding through 2 Corinthians, and we'll sing them later uh, as well. They echo what Paul has been saying throughout this letter to the church in Corinth. That is, it is not in our strengths that we live as Christians. Authentic ministry, which is what Paul has been defending throughout this whole letter. The Christian life, if you like, is not a display of our power, of our strength, of our resilience, of our ability. Anything where you prefix with our, no. Yet not I. That is, we live, we do everything because why? Christ is in me. Is in us, if we are Christians here today. And that is the great privilege. It is the great privilege and reality for the Christian that Christ is present. He is present amongst us and in us by his spirit, in our hearts, through faith in the Lord Jesus Christ. And so we go, as the great old hymn says, our own great weakness feeling and needing more each day thy grace to know. Yet from our hearts, because the spirit is in there, a song of triumph pealing. And we rest on thee and in thy name we go. Christ is in us and we go in his strength and we do so for his glory. And this is the big theme throughout both of Paul's letters to the church in Corinth. 1 Corinthians, uh, Paul has stressed the importance of the the presence of the Holy Spirit in the congregation and in the the individual believer. And in that letter, he was showing the, the moral implications of what that meant. That the Spirit is in our hearts. There should be some difference, some distinctive moral, ethical living. So 1 Corinthians 3, for example, 16, or chapter 6, verse um, verse 19 and 20. Paul describes our bodies there as holy living temples of the Holy Spirit. That is purchased to honour God with the down payment of the Spirit. Christ is in us, which changes everything. And it is right in the heart of our passage today. Verse 5, Look, at, just glance down it, we'll come back to it in a moment. But, but see the kind of central importance of this understanding that Christ is present in us by his spirit. Verse 5, do you not realise that Christ Jesus is in you? Let's think about why that's so important and the kind of the bigger picture. Paul has been reminding the church throughout this letter uh, the reality of who they are. Paul had visited Corinth, established a church, written to the church on a number of occasions. We have two of probably four of his whole of the letters he wrote. He was trying to steer the church through its early and very turbulent years. What had happened though, and we've seen it throughout 2 Corinthians, is a, a kind of a very unhelpful minority, but a very influential minority had begun to undermine Paul. A full-scale rebellion had ensued, and Paul writes, yes, defensively at times, but he does so in love for the church, to warn the church and to draw them back to God. And so he approaches the end of this letter, and here is heart for the church in Corinth. Here is love 
for the church. His concern because all of that is expressed. And hear this appropriately. He, all of that, his love, is concerned. Everything is expressed in two ways. In words of comfort, but also words of warning. Which is where the chapter begins. Look at the first point. Paul warns the church one final time. Look at verse 1 with me. This will be my third visit to you. Every matter must be established by the testimony of two or three witnesses. Paul visited the church twice already. You can read about the first visit in Acts 18. You can have a look at that later if you like. His second visit, we don't have a record of that. It's not recorded in Acts or anywhere else, but he came with sorrow. He, he mentions that at the beginning of 2 Corinthians chapter 2. It tells us something. He says something there that he doesn't want to repeat. This second visit had been what is described by him as a painful visit. It was to correct and to rebuke some shocking behaviour in this small minority in the church and perhaps just a few individuals in 1 Corinthians. But what it had done is it, it had opened the door to some of his critics. Critics, as we've seen, who had sought to undermine his authority and his teaching. And if Paul were to come again, he needs to, need to make sure that he was therefore above reproach. He couldn't be accused of anything. Which is why he roughly quotes from Deuteronomy in verse 1 there. He says, every matter must be established by the testimony of, of two or three witnesses. What he's saying there is, he said, as I come to the church, if I come, my judgment will be measured and fair. And that sounds great, doesn't it? For all you lawyers out there. But if you are a rebelling minority in this church... And an apostle says, my judgment will be measured and fair. Well, you'd be rightly quaking in your boots. They had rejected Paul because of his Christ-like humility, his lack of presence as a speaker. And because he was visually not very impressive at all. He didn't come with the letters of recommendation which they bragged about the whole time. But in rejecting Paul, they were rejecting God. He was the authentic apostle, appointed and empowered by God. And he, he longed to ch- come to this church again. But his warning is clear, isn't it? Look at verse 2. I already gave you a warning when I was with you the second time. I now repeat it whilst absent. On my return, I will not spare those who sinned earlier or any of the others. Now, his judgment on the rebellious minority in Corinth will not be sparing when he comes. And they were demanding all these kind of signs, ecstatic kind of visions and so on. And Paul warns them, since you are demanding proof that Christ is speaking through me, verse 3, he's not weak in dealing with you, but he is powerful among you. You see, this, this rebellious minority, they, they might want all the kind of the, the show and the, 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 the big signs of power, but they were about to get much more than they ever bargained for. He's not weak, he says there, verse 3. That is, he's speaking there of Christ. Christ is not weak. And he will not be weak in dealing with rebellion and discord in his church through his chosen means. Here, an apostle. 
These teachers have brought the, the culture of Corinth. And they, they brought it into the church. And they dismissed Paul as this weak and inferior uh, kind of person. His teaching, oh, it's not as eloquent as ours. And as you looked at Paul, certainly by the standards of Corinth, he would have looked really unimpressive and weak. But by the standards set by Christ, we'll look at verse 4. For to be sure, he, that is Christ, was crucified in weakness, yet he lives by God's power. You look at the cross of Christ and you can think, you can think very obviously, oh, it's weak, isn't it? It's a weak thing to be crucified and hung on a cross. But it's anything but weak. Only God could take on human flesh. Could go through the mockery of a trial to be willingly beaten and flogged, still retaining the power of a a creator God, could stop it in a moment. That's strength, isn't it? To still go through that for you and me. And likewise, Christ now lives displaying God's power because he defeated death and rose to new life. Paul shows, yes, he may appear weak in Corinthian eyes. But, as he says at the end of verse 4, we are weak in him, in Christ. And yet by God's power we will live with him in our dealing with you. Paul is God's humble servant. And he warns the church he's established and a church that he absolutely loves dearly that they must not underestimate his coming to them in the power of the risen Christ. Oh, they dismiss Paul, his lack of show, his diminutive kind of appearance, his endless beatings and his relentless radical desire to make Christ known. And all that had made, in Corinthian eyes, he made him look weak inauthentic as a minister of the gospel of Christ. And I wonder, if Paul were to walk in the back here, and he were to come to the front here, this angular, single-minded, scruffy, weak, scarred, worn-out man who was willing to spend his life For the sake of making Christ known, I wonder what you'd say in your hearts and minds. I know you'd be very, very clever. You'd never say it outright. But I wonder if, like me, in your mind, you'd be steady on there, Paul. You need to slow down a bit. You probably need to understand our London culture a bit more. Be a bit more savvy. Don't don't be so bold in your preaching. Paul is coming to the church in Corinth and, and in Christ's power. And he will deal with this rebellious minority. What does Paul have in his armory? Well, he could excommunicate. That's something which still applies today very much. Uh, you can look at Matthew 18 later, Matthew 16 as well. He can mean to throw these guys out of the church for the sake of them and for the others as well. Church discipline is real and it is necessary. 
But with Paul being a unique, empowered apostle of Christ, it could be a whole lot worse. 1 Corinthians, for example, verse, uh, chapter 11, verse 30. Some had died in, in their rebellion against God. In 1 Corinthians 5, verse 5, some were delivered over to Satan by Paul to suffer horribly until they repented and came back in unity with the church, aligned with the gospel. These detracting, rebellious minority uh, had been warned by Paul. They'd, they'd set up all these tests, hadn't they, for Paul, and he'd failed every single one. He failed their test on being eloquent enough. He failed their test on his appearance. He failed their test as far as, you know, he wasn't really a success in his ministry, was he? How could you be a success? You've got a back which has been flogged so many times. It's scarred. He's been beaten. He's been shipwrecked. Nothing about Paul's life kind of shouted success. Paul was a failure in their eyes. He didn't pass the Corinthian test. And I wonder whether he would pass the London test. And so Paul turns their testing on them. Which is where we get to our second point. Verses 5 and 6. Paul calls the church to test themselves. Look at verse 5 with me. Examine yourselves to see whether you are in the faith. Test yourselves. Do you not realise that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And the test is simple, isn't it? Is Christ in you? And it's such an open, subjective kind of question, isn't it? But that is Paul's intention here. Anyone, any single person can say, oh, Christ is in me. Paul just wants them to stop trying to test him and start, start examining themselves, start looking at them. Are they holding on to their faith in Jesus Christ that they once testified to? Is there any confirmation of that or fruit of that, of Christ's presence in their lives? Is there any kind of moral or ethical distinction from them as the church and, and the city out there in Corinth or us in London? Is Christ in them by his spirit? Policy is taking them, their gaze off him and trying to get see what is central. What is the most important thing? And to the Corinthians, the outside, all of the show, that's what mattered most to them. The eloquence, the speech, the ecstatic experiences, their perceived success, all of this coming from their, what we call, triumphalist teaching. But to Paul, what mattered most? And to God, what matters most? is very simple indeed. Verse 5. Do you not realise that Christ Jesus is in you? Unless, of course, you fail the test. And that is a test you do not want to fail. And so, is Christ in you? There's nothing at all more important. But Paul, in asking the Corinthians to test and examine themselves... He's at the same time, in a sense, realigning their expectations. Look at verse 6. And I trust that you will discover that we have not failed the test. They've been looking at Paul so dismissively. Their expectations were skewed by the kind of detracting teachers of Corinth and that culture of Corinth leeching into the church and skewing their views. And now Paul is saying, no, 
I hope you now see we do not fail the test. But notice how positively Paul is speaking here. His hope and expectation is that in examining themselves, if they see Christ in themselves, they too will begin to see the reality of who Paul is. That Christ is in him. That they will look beyond the beaten, the weak, unimpressive exterior and see an apostle of Christ, a man who had given everything in the service of Christ. So Paul warns the church one final time. Secondly, Paul calls the church to test themselves. Thirdly and lastly, Paul prays the church will be fully restored. Now that title sounds reasonable, doesn't it? But if you look at verse 7, it's rather otherworldly. Look at verse 7 with me. Now we pray to God that you will not do anything wrong. Not so that people will see that we have stood the test, but so that you will do what is right, even though we may seem to have failed. See what Paul is doing here. Paul prays for this minority in the church, for those who have caused him so much grief, so much heartache. What's he doing? He's praying for his enemies. I don't know about you, but you know when someone annoys you slightly, or let's use the word enemies loosely here, but you know, when, when someone slightly frustrated you or annoyed you, I find it very easy to default, do, do my natural thing. That doesn't often include prayer. Maybe it does for you, but that's just putting my hands up there. And even if I do pray, or you do pray for those who frustrate you, annoy you, you know, your enemies and so on, do you pray like me sometimes, which is, a, I pray that they come around to my way of thinking. I pray that they see my way. That they understand how wrong they are. Paul here prays for his enemies and the church who caused him so much grief, and he prays that they will not do anything wrong. But note his motivation. It's not that he will then look good, but simply so the church will do what is right before the eyes of God. And even if that makes Paul look a failure, he's still willing to pray that for them. You see, if these detractors, this rebellious kind of minority in the church, if they then suddenly turn and they do what is right, they begin to honour God, this unity within the church, that has been established, they've been restored to God, Paul will no longer have to come in power, will he? As he promises in verse 4. It might actually look, if, if they do what is right, that Paul has no power. It might look as though he has failed in that way. But Paul's heart is only for the church, that they be restored to relationship with God. That is, he's not seeking vengeance here. Look at verse 8, for we cannot do anything against the truth, but only for the truth. That is, he wants the church united in the gospel. They want, he wants the church restored. Verse 9, we are glad whenever we are weak, but you are strong. And our prayer is that you may be fully restored. See, Paul doesn't mind. He doesn't mind appearing weak so that they may be strong in their faith, restored to unity in the gospel. And in this we see Paul mirroring who? Obviously Christ. Do you remember what Jesus cried out on the cross? 
Forgive them, Father, for they do not know what they are doing. I hadn't realised until this week that uh, as Jesus said those words and as they're recorded in Luke's Gospel, it's recorded in the imperfect tense. What does that mean? It means that as Jesus cried out these words, he does so again and again and again. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing repeatedly again and again. Father, forgive them for they know not what they are doing. Likewise, as Jesus taught on the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew 5, love your enemies, pray for those who persecute you. So you have to think, who are your critics? Who mocks your faith? Who makes your life hard, difficult? Pray for them. Pray for them. Pray like Paul here that they will be strong, that they will be restored to God. And so Paul concludes, verse 10. This is why I write these things when I am absent. That when I come, I may not have to be harsh in my use of authority. The authority the Lord gave me for building you up, not for tearing you down. He's pleading with the church here. Before his final exhortations, uh, which will come next week in the, in, the, in, in the last four verses. He pleads with the church. Do not let me come to you severely. With discipline, harshly exercising my authority. Let me come to you and let me build you up. I hope you hear the warning. Because I think it speaks to us as much today as it did to the church in Corinth in the first century. To us as a church, when we import the values of culture rather than obediently following God and his word when we lack a distinctive moral presence in our society, well, the warning stands to leaders and maybe our view of leaders. If we as a church or as a group of churches extol personality and drive over godliness and faithfulness, the warning stands... The warning of Paul stands when image is everything. When we go to church to be entertained and impressed. The warning of 2 Corinthians stands when we think that we are the centre of things. When our feelings, our comfort, our health and our spiritual experiences are what matters most. Rather than a life of worship devoted to the service of God and the gospel. The warning stands when... Super apostles are chosen over Paul's. Paul doesn't want to exercise authority in a harsh way. He longs, he prays that the church might be restored, that they know Christ in them and they can see Christ in Paul. They've been obsessed with just the exterior and they'd ignored what mattered most. Please hear the warning. You're all so savvy at making your exteriors. We all are, aren't we? And making our exteriors look so wonderful, so sorted, so everything in line. Don't ignore what matters most. 
Hear the warning and strive for full restoration with God and with one another. I'm going to finish with this. I'm, I'm sorry it's a slight snow, but no, next week is uh, much more uh, rejoicing in that sense. Let me finish with this because this, in essence, is his final warning. And I don't want you to underestimate what the warnings of the Bible, um, the strength of them. I want you to turn, if you can, you, can, you don't have to turn to it, but Numbers 16. Numbers chapter, uh, chapter 16. Page 153. Number 16 is three men called Korah, Dathan and Abraham approached Moses in an effort to take over the priesthood. Verse 3, they came up as a group to oppose Moses and Aaron and said to them, you have gone too far. The whole community is holy, every one of them, and the Lord is with them. Why then do you set yourselves above the Lord's assembly? When Moses heard this, he, he fell face down. Then he said to Korah and his followers, In the morning the Lord will show who belongs to him and who is holy, and he will make that person come near. The man he chooses will cause, he will cause to come near. There's a, there's a long story which then ensues with various senses. Um, of incense and so on. And you get to verse 31. And these men who were rebelling against God's order and authority, this happens. As soon as he finished saying all this, the ground under them split apart and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed them in their households. And all those associated with Korah, together with all their possessions, they went down alive into the realm of the dead with everything they owned. The earth closed over them and they perished and were gone from the community. Now their cries, all the Israelites around them fled shouting, the earth is going to swallow us too. And fire came down out of the Lord and out from the Lord and consumed the 250 men who were offering the incense. I'm not showing you that simply to make a direct parallel. I'm showing you that to show you the awesome holiness of God I'm showing you that to hear his warning God is no less holy rebellion will not be overlooked and so hear the warning be restored from your rebellion and you know it all your outsides look fantastic. What about in here? So hear the warning. Be restored from your rebellion. Against the same God. Let's pray. Maybe just a moment of quiet to reflect on our own hearts.